Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show, Pacifica host Garland Nixon on the ideology of empire and what it may or may not have to do with U.S. narcissism and the statistical manual of mental disorders. Hello, Garland Nixon here. And uh, I've often referred to the neocons as narcissists. I've used that term. I've referred to the U.S. empire as the narcissistic empire. I'm going to explain why. Maybe you'll agree or maybe not. Let's talk. Okay, so what we're talking about is the issue of narcissism narcissism, right? And when I say the narcissistic empire, when I say the neo neocons are narcissists, I don't just mean that in a general sense. I really kind of mean it in a clinical sense. And so here's what we're going to do. Let's look over not the, what it means to be a narcissist. Let's look over. There's actually, um, if you look at what's called the uh, Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSMV, we're going to look at that um, it's a diagnostical, diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. Let's go actually go over those, those. Let's talk about not just the neocons, but let's talk about the U.S. empire. Is it a narcissistic empire? Because the neocons, to be honest, are an expression of the empire. They're an expression of the ideology of empire. So anyway, let's get started. What we're going to do. So it says, while we have ideas of what narcissism looks like, the DSM lists nine traits and characteristics that are characteristics that are clinically significant in determining if someone's supersized ego may be something more than just self-confidence. At least five of the following traits must be exhibited to meet the diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. Now, let before I go that far, let me say this. Don't just listen to all of them and say, my God, I'm a narcissist, because you may be. Keep in mind something, that we all as human beings have some level, I mean, anything that I could come up with, narcissism, being a sociopath, being this, being that, right? Any trait I could come up with, right? Any um, uh, mental malady or emotional malady that I could come up with, everybody has some of it. It's, I mean, to be healthy, you, but look, uh, let me put it to you like this. If you look out for yourself, it's not necessarily narcissism. One of the big problems that people with low self-esteem have is of the opposite, the inability to look out for their own needs, to take care of themselves emotionally, to realize that they should have boundaries. So when you hear something and you think, okay, maybe that's me, not necessarily, you know what I mean? I'll put it to you like this. If you're a really good pool player, is it grandiose to think, to, to understand that you're a really good pool player? If you play a particular game and you're really, really good at it and you beat everybody. But I'll put it like this. If Michael Jordan said, I'm a great basketball player, does that mean he's a narcissist? No, he was a great basketball player. Wayne Gretzky, if he says, I think I'm the greatest hockey player ever, does that mean he's a narcissist? He may very well be the greatest hockey player ever, but there's an argument to be made there. Now, if Schlumpy, the the the, the uh, Saturday evening hockey player, says, I'm the greatest ever, well, you might want to question that. But at any rate, so don't just listen to these and automatically say, I'm a narcissist. My husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever the case may be, some combination thereof, yikes, maybe a narcissist. Not necessarily. It, we all have narcissistic traits. We all have various traits. The question is, do you have five of these and how pronounced are they and things of that nature? Okay, so don't don't go diagnosing yourself. All right, let's start here. So we're talking about the U.S. empire and the neocons are an expression of the, new, of the U.S. empire. Let's go. Grandiose, number one, grandiose of self, sense of self-importance. For instance, like somebody would say, I'm the dispensable nation. Think about this. United States is 4% of the world's population. And Tony Blinken and these other narcissists, they're much worse, actually. I would argue they're psychopaths. That's when you get to the violent kind. But these other people, when they say we're the greatest, we're with a rules-based international order, right? the U.S.-led world order, that's saying that a country with 4% of the world's population some for some reason has the right to rule the other 96, to lead the other 96. Grandiose sense of self-importance. This is the belief that your contribution and presence are essential to the happiness, success, or equilibrium of other people and any enterprises or relationships. 
They give an example. The project would have tanked if I hadn't been on the team. If it weren't for me, who knows where my spouse would have ended up? So that's an example. Or we're the indispensable nation. The world looks to us for leadership, right? 4% of the world. Grandiose sense of self-importance. Let's just check that one off as a definite yes and move on to number two. Preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. This describes the belief that you are capable of exceptionally high levels of achievement, even when your skills or abilities provide no evidence of this being possible. As an example, let's just say you got a country, and that country is 33 Excuse me now, I just probably by the time I, I, I finished the sentence, we had another trillion, $34 trillion in debt the last time I checked. $34 trillion in debt last time I checked. And you send, let's say, Janet Yelling to China. Last time I checked, China had, this was some years ago, like $14 trillion or something in savings. So we are oh, getting close to $50 trillion in the red from China, right? And Janet Yellen said to China, you know, they should consider free market. You should consider doing things. Well, wait a minute. You know what that's like? That's like an alcoholic walking up to me and I'm and, and, and saying, hey, Garland, take a swig off of this cheap Boone's Farm wine. And Garland says, ah, man, no, thanks. I'm, I'm not I'm not a drinker. And the person's like, are you kidding? Look at my life. I've lost my wife and kids. I've lost my job. I've lost my driver's license. My friend, family won't talk to me. My health is shot. My liver's burned out. Um, I'm, I'm homeless. Can I? Can you spare a couple bucks? And I'm like, no, I can't spare a couple bucks. Oh, okay. In that case, join me for a drink. You should live your life like me because I really know, right? You'd be like, dude, you're coming to borrow money from me because you're like a friggin' alcoholic and you're asking me to join you with a bottle of cheap wine. You're asking me to turn my life into yours. I'm living okay. I got a roof over my head. Uh, I can pay my gas electric bill. And you want to sleep here because you got no place to stay in the wintertime. And I should become like you. Boom, right? The belief that you're special and unique. You have fantasies of unlimited excess, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love, right? And this... You're capable of exceptionally high levels of achievement, even when your skills or abilities provide no evidence of it. No evidence. If you look at the U.S., where is the evidence that the U.S. is it, it should lead the world? Has the U.S. brought peace and stability anywhere in the world? I don't want to hear about how rich the U.S. is. The U.S. is not broke. We're not broke. We're $34 trillion in debt. That's far worse than broke. There's a famous... Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's attributed to Donald Trump that like at one time when he was like bankrupt or something, was it Trump? I think it was Trump or somebody at any rate, some rich person had gone bankrupt and they're riding down the road down New York in a limo and they saw a billion, a bum on the side, you know, bum as we say, a homeless person, right? I'm, you tell I'm old, I'm still using words like bum. Homeless person on the side, right? And bum implies that it's that person's fault. We don't notice that person's fault. on it. So, you know, I don't like to use that word. But at any rate, so they see a homeless person and they said, you know, the difference between me and that person over there. And the driver said, what? And the person said, he's $300 million richer than I am because he's laying on the street with nothing. But I'm 300 million in debt. Right. So bottom line is you believe that you can do exceptional things. Tony Blinken, the world should follow us. The world's looking for our leadership. The world wants our leadership. The U.S. led world order. We blah, blah, blah. Even though when people look at you, they say you're $34 trillion in debt. And everywhere you set foot on this planet, you start a war. What makes you think that you deserve power? Right. And the U.S. is like the U.S. led world order. If that ain't a fantasy of unlimited success, power and brilliance, I don't know what is. Hey, the U.S. led world. We should rule the world, even though we're only four percent of the world. Number one. And number two, we can't rule our own country. The people are in the street like, what the hell are we doing in Gaza? Right. We've got the main opposition figure. They've charged him with everything in the world and they think it's OK. Let's charge Trump with everything we can. Yay. Because we're here to save democracy. And Biden literally now, the Democratic Party says in North Carolina, Tennessee, Massachusetts, and Florida, there will only be one name on the ballot. That's Joe Biden. They won't even put Marianne Williamson's name on the ballot. But they have unlimited ideas of how we should rule the world and spread democracy everywhere except here. So I think we can check off a preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success. If ruling the world ain't unlimited success, I don't know what it is. 
how about this? Oh boy, you're going to rule the world. Yeah. How's your plan in Ukraine to overtake, take over Russia working out? Hmm. Not so well. So the evidence says that the United States is broke, impoverished. Our system doesn't work and our country is run by morons. It's a cacistocracy. Look it up. A cacistocracy is a um, nation in which the, or a political system in which the most corrupt, inept bunglers rise to the top. Does that sound like the United States? And yet we do have preoccupations with fantasies of unlimited success. And coming up next on Arts Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. As someone who likes to curl up with a good mystery book, I was attracted recently to the title Karl Marx, Private Eye by Jim Feast. What with the rage for mashups with historical figures in unlikely places like Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Slayer, what better idea than to make Karl Marx, that master detective of the movement of capital and the social relations of production, into the detective of a murder mystery. Well, this one is set in 1872 in Carlsbad, Bohemia, and to make things even better, Carl is joined by his daughter, Eleanor Marx, who at the time of the book's setting is 20 years old and every bit as smart as her father. And if that weren't enough to make it tempting to read, another major character in the book is the redoubtable Sherlock Holmes. Only in this book, Sherlock is a 16-year-old youth shy with women, with a crush on Eleanor Marx, but a love of detective work and a high intellect. And add to that a plot that involves the theft of an original Shakespeare first folio, and well, you've got me to open up the covers. Well, the story is set into motion when Marx and Eleanor are visiting a spa in Bohemia, under assumed names, of course, to elude the Prussian authorities who do not take kindly to communists. And the two of them witness the double murder of a famous visiting American millionaire and his maid. Well, the main suspect turns out to be a recently escaped prisoner, a member of the Serbian independence underground who comes face to face with Marx in the spa, but drops dead all of a sudden at Marx's feet. And together with the young Sherlock, Carl and Eleanor, try to unravel the mystery of the deaths and a subsequent one, which may or may not be tied up to the repercussions of the recent annihilation of the Paris Commune. I'll read a passage now from the book so that you can get an idea of the mixture of whimsy and politics that are woven throughout the book. While sick people in hospitals got bed sores from lying too long in one position, Marx was having similar skin problems, carbuncles, cysts, and indentations from long hours sitting. Working, eating, drinking, all the things one did in living were ruining his health. Not work, of course, but overwork. Yet how led up when the demands on his time, back at home base in London, were so unavoidable? Capital two. Translations of one, political meetings for the unions and socialists, correspondence, family upsets such as Laura's marriage, and Eleanor's flirtation with an older man, and money needs, always money needs, and not eating so much as overeating. But how turn down a friend such as his English translator Sam Moore, who might invite him for a repast after a town hall? Or how not eat when a Christmas goose appeared out of season, plump and hearty, courtesy of Engels? Not drinking regularly, but occasionally long bouts at a table of good fellowship, partaking of the highly palatable English stout or wine or the whiskey Engels like to occasionally swim about in. Marx arrived at the spa facility. After exchanging his clothes for a large bath towel, he entered a shower stall. Hooking the cloth on a peg, he allowed his heavy body to luxuriate under the pallidly warm water. When fully wetted, he redonned his towel and followed a party 
of similarly attired gentlemen to the hot air vault. Today he saw that two fellows seated on the back shelf had laced up their towels like togas. He took a seat on the pew. Behind him sat a stilted young man rumored to be a flimflammer. The bloke held a newspaper in his hands, which he had to keep straightening as if propping up a wilting flower. As no conversation was going on, Marx began thinking about the Serbian independence movement. Well, that little excerpt kind of gives you an idea of the tone of the book. It's got some humor and atmosphere, and the concept of the mystery is a good one. But there are definite problems with the book, so I have to say there was a certain amount of frustration and disappointment finishing it. Well, let me talk a little bit more about the mystery genre in general and what my expectations are. Not some rules from on high, but just my personal predilections when it comes to mysteries. Ever since I read my first real mysteries as a boy, ironically, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, it seems to me that a good mystery has to have a number of things going for it. First off, there's got to be an actual puzzle to solve. For me, it's the actual working out of the puzzle that provides the main, but not the only, pleasure in a mystery story. Now, sometimes people confuse mysteries with crime thrillers. But a thriller can have a lot of excitement in crime, but not much of the mystery puzzle to be solved. Or, as in many Hitchcock movies, there can be a nominal puzzle, but it's clearly just, in the now well-known term, a MacGuffin, an excuse to incite the action of the story. But in the kind of mysteries I like, the ingenious solution to the crime is the main point of the story. Nothing wrong with Hitchcock movies, but I don't turn to his films for the mystery kind of pleasure. Okay, next requirement. The solution to the crime cannot just be Here's a list of five suspects, and you find out at the end which one did it. Oh, the butler did it. Okay, so what? The whole pleasure should come from the ingenuity of the solution, the surprise. Otherwise, it's not a puzzle, but just a fact revealed. Next requirement, my favorite kind of mystery plays fair. By that, I mean the reader should have as many facts before them as the detective does. In order for it to be a fair battle of wits between the reader and the detective, the detective cannot be withholding special knowledge from the reader until the end. And next, there has to be clarity in the telling events, even with a story that has many subplots. A famous magician, Di Vernon, once said about performing magic illusions that confusion isn't magic. Well, that's true of a mystery plot as well. Confusion isn't mystery. It's just confusion. Too many amorphous dead ends and unexplained events just confuses the reader rather than deepening the mystery. And finally, the readable mystery, while needing an ingenious puzzle, like I said, also needs more than just that. It needs to go beyond genre requirements. In the early 20th century, there were scores of what were known as locked room mystery stories, and the plot was always the same. Someone was murdered in a room that had no unlocked entrances or exits, and yet someone lay murdered within. Now, for all the ingenuity of some of these stories, most of them read like exercises, the equivalent of someone playing scales on a piano. It's mistaking a skeleton of an idea for a full-bodied story. What we ideally want are characters who are engaging and three-dimensional and who also impart some larger psychological or emotional truth about human existence and the human condition. In other words, the very best mystery books are those which would stand up as worthy pieces of fiction, even if the mystery aspect to them didn't exist. Well, with that criteria, I can explain now why I was disappointed with Karl Marx's Private Eye, despite my high hopes for it. First off, the puzzle aspect of the mystery is weak. It neither plays fair nor is the denouement particularly interesting. We know the field of suspects and the murderer turns out to be one of them, but it's not especially surprising. And there's no ingenuity really in solving the case either. 
The murderer in the end is just caught red-handed in a compromising position. In addition, the plot lines are very confusing at times and it's difficult to keep track of what has actually occurred. Okay, but what about the characters and the sense of atmosphere? Well, here it does better, and it, it would seem hard to go wrong with Carl and Eleanor and Sherlock, and they certainly are amusing to envision in these circumstances. And it's fun to see Carl giving Sherlock advice about how to analyze a situation from a Marxist perspective. He tells Sherlock that in order to get to the bottom of a situation, you have to start off with the material facts but then ascend upwards to understand the wider social forces within which the facts are embedded. And there's also a nice moment in the story when the three detectives, Carl, Eleanor, and Sherlock, each independently come to the conclusion that they're only going to solve the mystery by pooling their knowledge and acting collectively. So these are some of the strong moments in the book, and I wish there were more of them. But strangely, Carl seems to drop out of the story some 10 pages before the end and never even gets to share in the capture of the killer. In fact, after Sherlock and Eleanor catch the murderer, there's no coda at all among them afterwards, tying up loose ends and explaining why certain assumptions were made. We're really just left hanging. So it's really not a satisfying ending. And when it comes to mysteries, we will forgive a lot, but the ending is really where you have to deliver. So let's say we give this book three stars out of five, a great concept that promises a lot and delivers on some, but falls short of what could have been. I've been talking about Karl Marx's Private Eye by Jim Feast, published by PM Press. This is Jack Shalom putting on his Deerstalker for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Express. While most of the esteemed 44 Merchant Ivory productions have a British sensibility, the global creative team behind them, surprisingly, is not British at all. Counting Indian producer Ismail Merchant, German-born screenwriter Ruth Prower, and the only one among them still alive, Aragon Reard director James Ivory. And now in a conversation about the documentary, Merchant Ivory, a look back at the immense creative energy they had together on their films. Our James Ivory and the director of this new documentary, Stephen Susi, raising as well the gender question concerning the male mix with their late female screenwriter, Ruth Prower. First, some scenes from The Europeans the Henry James Merchant Ivory Adapted Production, touching on class and culture clash contradictions famously satirized by Henry James, then our conversation with James Ivory and Stephen Soucy. of passion to be calmed, luxuriance of sensuality to be loved. All the benefits of a useful education may be lost by acquaintance with companions of bad habits. Then I have the honor, <laughs> the pleasure of being your cousin. I know you come from Europe. Well, you've heard of us then. We must all be careful. This is a great change. We are to be exposed to peculiar influences. I don't say they're bad, I don't judge them in advance, but we should employ a great deal of wisdom and self-control. I must admit I've fallen quite in love with your American arrangements. Even your domestics have an air, a style of their own. That is Hattie. Yes, I'd love to have one for myself, 
but I brought my own maid with me from Paris. You seem so different from your father and your sister, and from most of the people you've lived with. They say themselves that I'm different. It makes them unhappy. You're not in love with her. I don't know. I like to be with her. But if this is love, it's overrated. He doesn't care for the things we care for, for the great questions of life. Neither do I. I've been pretending all this time. I've been dishonest. It's pleasure that I care for. Hi. Hi. Hello to both of you and welcome to our show. Great. Okay. What was your intent in embarking on this documentary? And would you say that it was the same or different for each of you in any way? And Jim, was there anything different for you about the aspirations for the film? No, I, I, I very much liked that uh, uh, um, the, the the film about uh, Merchant Ivers' music, and and I I thought the the animated section of it was uh, was mostly animated. I I thought it was wonderful. I loved it. So I had no, there was no reason not to proceed. I mean, I thought, well, I'm in good hands. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Perry. Um, and I'm Stephen Susi. And I would say I made Merchant Ivory because I felt that the work that their career, the the you know the 43, 44 films that they made, I felt that there there needed to be a definitive look at that Merchant Ivory story and trajectory. So, um, and really, I made the film because I felt that. For cinema history, um, I wanted to capture that Merchant Ivory story and, um, you know, tell that story through, through a documentary film. And in specific ways, when you disagreed about anything, if you did, in shaping the documentary, who won? <laughs> <laughs> so, so well, I brought... Kinds of things, yeah. You both <laughs> win. You, are, you always, you know, you... Well, the, the film wins. That's, that, let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, and I would say, so I would bring kind of sections of the film to Jim to watch um, and to engage with in really kind of building the film with all the materials that I had gathered, you know, over the course of two, two and a half years. You know, I shot more than 50 interviews um, and so again, I would bring, let's say I would bring act one to Jim and have him take a look at it. And then I would go away and then and I would come back and I would hear his notes and I would incorporate some of those notes. But I would, I would say the same thing. We definitely, we both won and we both, we were both on the same page when, <laughs> when we were making this film. Okay. And Jim, in terms of your vast body of merchant ivory work, spanning so many cultures and time periods, would you say there was one prevailing idea connecting all of them in terms of human nature or the human condition? <laughs> well, I, I, I would say it's, it's the same run through everything from my very first, uh, my very first documentaries that I made were really about, uh, they were about artistic cities uh, and about art. And, um, but I would say that, uh, I, I, I don't know, I've just gone along in my, my usual way, uh, right or wrong. And, and uh, uh, I, <laughs> I'm just, what can I say? I'm just me and uh, uh, thinking in a certain way about, about my films and why I, why I've you know enjoyed or not enjoyed making them or well, I've enjoyed making all of them but in fact you know things come up which are not uh, easy to deal with all the time and so you so you know it's just a story but it's it's me going through the whole thing it is still always me and if a dramatic film were made about the two of you, who would you think about portraying you and, on the other hand, playing Ismail? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I won't say I haven't thought of that. I mean, <laughs> because that's been suggested in times. But, uh, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, at least as long as it's an American for me. <laughs> Uh, I hate it when 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 people think that I'm English, 
And uh, in fact, I'm a, a guy who was born and brought up in Klamath, not born, but brought up in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And I'm not in any way English. And I hate it when, because I, I had those very successful English films, I hate it that everyone thinks I just take it, takes it for granted that I'm English. Um, so, and is, as for Ismail, I don't know who would ever in the world play <laughs> Ismail. I mean, God, I know. I know that's I'm very problem. energetic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's energetic a tall guy. And huh? oh. no, no, no. I just said that's it. I mean, yeah, that's an ambitious uh, role for someone to play. So, mm. right. And I guess for both of you, what do you feel is the impact and legacy of Merchant Ivory Productions on the film world? Oh, I mean, I I would have to say just that independent uh, mindset, the independent filmmaking. You know, I just feel, um, you know, Ismail was one of the first, if not the first, just uh, successful independent producers. Merchant Ivory, they were able to choose the projects that they wanted to make, the projects that they were meaningful, you know, to their lives, you know, as Jim just, you know, said. I mean, and so I just give Ismail so much credit for embarking on film after film after film. I mean, it was almost one film a year. Um, and again, fiercely independent, um, not not within you know the more traditional, let's say, studio system. They they made the films that they wanted to make, and, so and sometimes uh, we did work in the studio system. That's that's yes. another thing. Yes. And the studios never messed us about ever. Uh, they knew what they were getting when they asked us to do something for them, like Remains of the Day. They knew what they would be getting. They hoped they'd be getting that. They wanted that, and they never ever interfered. Same with Disney. Disney, Disney was like they were like princes. <laughs> which is a very fortunate, which is a very fortunate position to be in. And Jim, <laughs> and Jim, during those many decades, were there any subjects you adamantly refused to consider? No, I, I wouldn't <laughs> say so. I mean, uh, but those subjects weren't likely to come up, so. Um, I mean, I would sometimes I would be sent scripts by by people who were ready to make a film, but I just didn't like the script. It just wasn't well written. It wasn't sort of anything I felt I could do anything with. And another thing, it, it, the reason that we were so long live um, is we had Ruth Chavala, our writer, and that's a, a terribly important. I mean, she is as important to the, uh, to Merchant Ivory as either Ismail or me, and. Uh, so that should never be forgotten. The importance of that diminished, right? Because we worked like the United States government. <laughs> I was the president, Ruth was the Supreme Court, and Ismail was Congress. <laughs> and that's how we did our, that's how we, we worked all those years. Sometimes the Supreme Court would rule, sometimes Congress would overrule and so forth. And overruling might be, you know, spending money or too much money or wanting more money or wanting wanting some outlandish uh, location which is just not to be had so that you know I, I could be voted down and would you say this documentary is in some sense in its sentiments a merchant ivory film as well not really no no I wouldn't say it's a Stephen Susie film yeah I mean I was gonna say I think it's um you know, of course, I'm inspired by Merchant Ivory films. You know, they've been key to my own life um, and maybe my development as, you know, as a director. But I agree with Jim. I feel that it's it's um, it's a Stephen Susie film at the end of the day. And what do right. both? Oh, and what do, what do both of you hope to convey to audiences with this documentary? And would you say that's different or the same for each of you in any way? Um, so I definitely want to inspire uh, people with the Merchant Ivory story. I would like to inspire artists, you know, so people that are that are thinking of making films, you know, I really, I've been inspired by the Merchant Ivory story um, as an artist, and uh, I would love to have other people be inspired by the incredible work that Merchant Ivory, you know, has done and gave, you know, and gave us. And Jim? 
Well, uh, and and as for me, I uh, the older I get, the, the more and in a way surprised I am by the effect that, that Merchant Ivory films have had on so many people. And particularly, it's like we skipped a generation, and now it's the next generation of younger people, people who are in their you know filmmakers possibly who are in their 30s and 40s, what our films mean to them and have meant down the years. Mm. Um, that's I'm really touched by that and and inspired myself by it. <laughs> if I can be, if you can say you're, you're if I if you can say inspired in that way. And what do you mean by skipping a generation? Well, um, <clears throat> I mean filmmakers who are now in their sixties and seventies. Uh, uh, they liked our films well enough, but they were doing their own thing. And um, but now the next generation, they they really show an appreciation, and they've seen everything. I mean, I'm surprised that they've seen all, all kinds of films of ours which appeared, were liked, or maybe not liked, and disappeared. Uh, they know everything, and they they know about performances, and they I mean it's incredible what they know. But that's the next generation. Is that it's now people who, you know, from middle 30s up to their 50s, who are, are filmmakers, my, my grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> and when you look in the mirror, what does James Ivory see? Well, today, James <laughs> Ivory would see a terrible scar on my forehead. Oh. And, um, yeah, which uh, um, I had one of those moose or moose things where they dig into your, they dig into you. So I have this ghastly scar on my forehead, oh. so I'd see that. That's all I'd see, probably. But, I mean, it's a familiar old face, and I, I can't say that I have ever not uh, been generally pleased <laughs> with the way I looked. <laughs> and any last word on this film, and why should people see Merchant Ivory? Well, I think it's going to, I think it's going to inspire people. I think, um, you know, the story of this wandering company, these individuals that came together and stayed together. And to think where they came from. Also, think where the yeah. individuals came together from. What, Ruth Javala, a Jewish from Cologne, who escaped at the very last moments in 1939 from, from Germany to go and live in England. And Ismail, an Indian Muslim from Bombay. And then me, this guy from Klamath Falls. And we were... <laughs> It's an odd mixture, but we, I don't know, we've, I don't know, between the three of us, we carried the flag. I think it, I also want this film to, um, and I think it will, uh, because it's feedback that I've had um, from people that have engaged with, with the documentary film. It inspires uh, them to go back and learn more about the Merchant Ivory Library. So maybe they haven't seen Slaves in New York. Maybe they haven't seen Quartet. Um, the film kind of introduces the audience to kind of the vast catalog of Merchant Ivory films. Hmm. Yeah. And and in terms Very of good for that. and in terms of gender differences, because you worked with a woman, uh, were there any issues that had to be worked out or discussed about gender differences? No. I mean, in terms no. of the uh, in terms of the content. No. No. I wouldn't I would never, never. I mean, uh, we just pretty much showed what we wanted to show, and, and there, no, you know, there was never that that sort of those kinds of issues didn't come up. Mm. I mean, they were those are not the kinds of things. If, well, if you work with a a woman screenwriter for fifty years, mm -hmm. I, there are the, the, what you do is going to reflect the fact that it is a woman screenwriter and it can't uh, who has who has interests and issues which are different from a man's. Mm. But you don't fight over that. You just accept that. This is one more color that you're given in, in your palette. Okay, well, thank you so much, both of you, for calling into the show about Merchant Ivory. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.
This is John Leguizamo, and I want to give a shout-out to everybody. Get political. <laughs> Get your political on. This is John Leguizamo. Arts Express with our UK desk update on the final fight against the U.S. extradition of Julian Assange coming up in February. Hi, this is the UK desk for Arts Express and my name is Brett Gregory. Antonio Gramsci, Eugene Debs, Emma Goldman, Bertrand Russell, Benazir Bhutto, just a handful of 20th century citizens who were incarcerated by their respective governments because they dug deep took a stand and said no. No to injustice, no to fascism and no to war. This evening I'm joined by Dr Matthew Alford from the University of Bath in the UK who is here to discuss one of the most important political prisoners of the 21st century. Matt, please tell us more. Julian Assange is 52 years old, he's Australian, he studied maths and computing and then founded WikiLeaks in 2006. I'd say perhaps the most neutral term for Julian Assange's profession is publisher. Personally, I prefer to call him a freedom fighter. WikiLeaks is a term which is often bandied about by the mainstream media. But how did it actually work? WikiLeaks was important because it had a specially designed Dropbox that allowed whistleblowers to post secret documents without anyone, and that included WikiLeaks itself, knowing their actual identity. And this was designed in order for everyone to be kept safe from prosecution. It was a brilliant invention. And why is whistleblowing so important? Whistleblowing is part of democratising any organisation. And it's really, really important, especially for organisations that are as secret as the CIA and NSA. So what kind of information did Julian Assange release by way of WikiLeaks? Julian Assange's revelations implicate powerful government and corporate villains worldwide in things like illegal surveillance, false flag military attacks. And the charges that are against him are for much of his best and his most famous work, including footage of the US Army when they slowly and deliberately killed 12 innocent people, including several journalists, from the safety of a helicopter gunship. He was instrumental in putting that video out online to hold the American military to account. And I'm assuming the consequences for him were extremely dire. Julian Assange was charged under the US Espionage Act of 1917 back in 2010. He's accused of working with Army Private Chelsea Manning to obtain and disclose classified information. Tell us a little more about Chelsea Manning, another name which the mainstream media has conveniently forgotten. Chelsea Manning leaked a lot of material when she was a private in the army, and she did this for moral reasons. And she was in prison for several years herself. Eventually, she was released following a plea bargain with Barack Obama. Chelsea Manning is a real hero for what she did. Personally, I'm unclear on why she has been so silent about Julian Assange's case for quite some time. It might be that she's had to sign some kind of gagging order. I don't know. That would just be speculation on my part. The plot thickens. There's been a huge clampdown on these sort of leaks from the Obama presidency onwards. One study found that almost all non-government representatives thought that the Espionage Act had been used, quote, inappropriately in leak cases that have a public interest component. One journalist says that it's almost impossible to mount a defence against charges under the Espionage Act because defendants are not allowed to use the term whistleblower, they're not allowed to mention the First Amendment, and they're not allowed to explain the reasons for their actions. The US government wants to get Julian Assange using the Espionage Act, but this would be the first time in over 100 years that that legislation has been used against a publisher. A lurid labyrinth of bestial bureaucracy. But Assange managed to escape, didn't he? for a while at least. 
2012, Julian Assange hid in an embassy in London and he stayed there for the next seven years. He was forcibly removed in 2019 and ever since he's been in Britain's top security prison, Belmarsh. All of Julian Assange's exercise is indoors. He has not seen the sun for five years. His feet haven't touched free soil in nearly 12 years. Library books where he currently resides are deemed a fire hazard. Julian Assange married his brilliant lawyer, Stella, in 2022 while in prison. For their wedding, they were not allowed to use the chapel. His children weren't even allowed to give him a daisy chain that they'd made. It was deemed a security risk. The food that is available in Belmarsh consists of, uh, quote, porridge for breakfast, thin soup for lunch, and not much else for dinner, according to his latest visitor. Julian has been in Belmarsh longer than any other prisoner, apart from one old man. The authorities actually formally accept, right up to the top judicial level, they accept that Julian Assange is a suicide risk. They don't seem to care. In fact, if anything, they seem to be encouraging it. I find it quite heartbreaking that the last photograph of Julian Assange is of him in court while he happens to be having a mini stroke. That's a horrific and inhuman timeline, and in the land of hope and glory as well. In 2022, the then UK Home Secretary, Priti Patel, of the right-wing Conservative Party, approved the extradition of Assange to the US in order to face the country's judiciary and penal system. From your descriptions, though, can this really be worse than Belmarsh Prison? Isn't the United States the land of the free and the home of the brave? Hasn't Julian Assange been brave? There are all sorts of ways to make his life worse in prison, to make anyone's life worse in prison, and those could well occur if he is deported, uh, if he is extradited to the United States. So, for example, Julian Assange is currently isolated in his cell for 23 hours a day, which is really, really bad. But if he goes to a supermax facility in the United States, it could be even worse. So, for example, it's likely that the CIA would prevent him from handling paper. Um, I mean, it's possible. Uh, it does happen to several dozen other prisoners uh, who are there on national security grounds. You know, just be shown a letter through a glass screen. Uh, in fact, the British prison, Belmarsh, already did this once uh, a couple of years ago in the depths of winter. They said uh, it was very, very cold. They said, OK, fill in this form so that you can acquire your clothes. But due to coronavirus regulations, he was not actually permitted to touch the pen and paper to put in that application. So there are all sorts of grotesque, perverse things that can be done to a human being when they are incarcerated. And uh, that situation could easily get a lot worse for Julian Assange if he goes to the United States, where the prison system is, uh, I think, widely accepted to be more brutal than even the British cases. Aren't political cases like this explicitly banned under the UK-US extradition treaty, though? Is international law being tampered with here? Yeah, I mean, the extradition treaty does explicitly ban extradition for political reasons, except for in cases that involve things like murder. But, you know, law can always be stretched. It can be repurposed for political reasons. And when it comes down to it, the national security state in the United States and in the UK despise Julian Assange. It's almost kind of personal. They're prepared to break all laws. They're prepared to break all conventions just to mess him up. I think standard borders, things like sovereign jurisdiction, Australia's rights, Ecuador's rights doesn't matter a jot to organisations like the CIA. What about freedom of speech? What about our right to know how our societies are being governed? I mean, it's always been standard practice for journalists to receive secret information, and they can use that secret information to hold powerful organisations, particularly the government, to account. If the government is allowed to repurpose current laws to prosecute a publisher, that means that in the future, they'll have set a precedent. They'll be able to do whatever they want in the name of national security. And it would take a phenomenally brave whistleblower or publisher right now to follow in Julian's footsteps, having seen the price that he's paid. That's genuinely chilling. It's like we're discussing the Gestapo. Anyway, so from a personal perspective, what does Julian Assange mean to you, Matt? Julian Assange is a symbol. 
a symbol of freedom uh, and a symbol of resistance. But he is also a human being in his own right. Even from this British prison where he currently languishes, Belmarsh in London, he's still sending out regularly, uh, whenever he can, messages of love and hope. Uh, I like this quote uh, from him. If wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by truth. Exactly. We need to keep the faith. So what action can people take? What can they do so they don't feel, you know, useless? For more information, I'd suggest going to the website stellaassange.com. That's the best place to be active, to support and to coordinate both online and on the streets. You can also contact me on Facebook if you like, Matt Alford, War, Laughs and Lies, if you want some more specifics. Uh, I'll be doing a running commentary about Julian Assange and other international political events. I'd just like to add, and this comes from Stella Assange's website, saving Julian Assange is about saving ourselves. What happens to him cannot be undone. It would be the end of our right to know and the end of our democracies. So please, listeners, gather outside the Royal Courts of Justice in London and in cities around the world on the 20th to the 21st of February at 8.30am and demand Julian's freedom. That's the Royal Courts of Justice in London on February 20th to the 21st from 8.30am. This has been a very sobering yet very urgent interview, Matt. Many thanks for your time. No problem. Nice speaking with you, Brett. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express with Dr Matthew Olford from the University of Bath. And I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.